Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Hey, we're here this morning. Good. Um, just a real quick announcement here before I begin. Um, uh, the Great Oaks Open House this afternoon, I, uh, there's a correction on the time. It's from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, this afternoon. Um, if you're not familiar with Great Oaks Camp, what they do is uh, provide, um, uh, well, there's a variety of things they do. One of the things that they do is provide a place for uh, churches and civic organizations and groups to have retreats and camp and that kind of thing. But in addition to that, every summer they also provide uh, free weeks of camp to uh, low-income and at-risk youth uh, from around the Peoria County and uh, surrounding communities. Um, a couple hundred kids every year go to camp for free and hear the gospel clearly presented, uh, but also ha have a whole bunch of fun. And uh, there are a lot of activities out there uh, that to enjoy and participate in. There's a three-person zip line, so three people can go down at all at the same time. Uh, my understanding is you hit about 35 miles an hour going down that thing, across a big canyon. It's pretty great. Um, and uh, there's, uh, there's fishing, there's canoeing, there's uh, free ice cream, there's paintball. I think the paintball course will be open. Uh, it's uh, small diameter paintballs, uh, so it's not the great big ones that hurt a lot. This is a low-impact paintball, if there is such a thing. Um, and, um, and it's a good time, and it's all free, open to the public, and uh, you're welcome to participate in that from 2 to 6 this afternoon. Now, let's pray, and then let's look some more at what it means to be Jesus' disciple. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to hear your thoughts, and to think your thoughts after you. Uh, Father, we pray that our thinking would become your thinking as we study your word, as we apply it to our lives, as your Holy Spirit empowers our obedience. Father, may we look like Jesus in every way. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, over the last several weeks, we have been looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and what it means in addition to that, uh, as part of that, actually, um, to make disciples of Jesus like Jesus told us to do. Remember, uh, he said, I'll be with you always, but uh, as I am in heaven until I return, here's what you are to do. You are to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, which, by the way, includes the command to do what? Make disciples, right? And so, um, so we've been looking at what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and how to make disciples like Jesus told us to do. What, um, what a disciple is, very simple, is someone who follows Jesus someone who is being transformed by Jesus, and somebody who has joined the mission of making disciples with Jesus. It's very simple. And 
Uh, making disciples is the process of teaching and showing someone else how to do each of those things. How to follow Jesus, how to be transformed by Jesus, and how to make disciples of Jesus. So it's, it's not a complicated process. It's not a complicated concept to understand. Uh, but what we've been doing over the last several weeks is talking about each of these elements, what it means to follow Jesus. And now we're into what it means to be transformed by Jesus as his disciple. So, so let's talk for, for a few minutes here about transformation. If you have paid attention to the movies lately, you know that one of the most popular genres of movies that are out there is what? The superhero movie, right? I mean, what are we on, like, you know, uh, Marvel Part 72 or something like that at this point, right? I don't know how many Marvel movies are out. I just know that, that there's, there's a, a movie coming that is just false on its face. I mean, it lies to you in the title, right? It's called Infinity War. But the movie only runs like three hours. So <laughs> I'm not sure how that works. But because uh, you're not at war for infinity for sure, right? But in any case, you watch enough of these movies and what you see is that uh, a lot of times the way somebody becomes a superhero is because they have something odd that happens to them, right? So Peter Parker uh, is on a museum trip with his high school class, gets bit by a radioactive spider, and then all of a sudden... He can walk on the ceiling, and he can, you know, he can shoot webs across canyons, of, of, and he can do all kinds of weird stuff, right? Or, you know, Bruce Banner has a, an experiment that goes wrong in his science lab, and all of a sudden, part of the time, he turns green and massive and invulnerable, right? And he becomes the Incredible Hulk, right? Some weird thing has happened to him. Uh, you add a few turtles, some radioactive goo, and suddenly you've got wisecracking, pizza-loving uh, ninja reptiles, right? I mean, that was my favorite one growing up, right? I think that was the best. But basically, I mean, there are a few lessons you need to learn on this, right? That basically stay away from anything ra radioactive and any scientist doing anything weird, right? <laughs> um, because it will be, do weird things to you, right? Now, when I was a, a boy, I thought that it would be really awesome to have superpowers, right? Uh, my, uh, my parents even bought for me, th th this, is, this, this dates me some, I know, but you could, buy this, um, you could buy these green muscles you would put on underneath your shirt, and then you could like hulk out, and you could pump them up, right? And it would, you know, and it would never rip my shirt the way it did on TV. I never I was very disappointed in this gift. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you could, you know, tr be transformed into the Incredible Hulk, right? Uh, I mean, who wouldn't want to be invulnerable and, and have lots of muscles, right? That would be, that would be super cool. Uh, who wouldn't want to live out your days as a ninja and eat pizza like it's your job, right? Who would not want to do this? And it does not look like a bad life to me. These superheroes seem like they have a pretty good life, right? They, they have to fight the occasional bad guy and the world hangs in the balance and all that. But, but on the whole, they have it pretty good, right? Well, I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible actually teaches that when a person puts their trust in Jesus Christ, that they are indwelt by and receive 
supernatural power. Did you know that? You realize that? That that to be a to be a Christian is not to be normal. It is to be indwelt by the the spirit of the living God and to have supernatural transforming power operating within your life. Now that will not make you be able to fly around the room or you know walk on the ceiling on your hands and knees or anything like that, but what it will do is it will change you radically from the inside out if you allow the Spirit to work within you. And God's Spirit does enable some very unusual and miraculous things from time to time. You read about some of those in Scripture, but God continues to work in power around the world in all kinds of ways. And it is supernatural. His divine power changes us to do what He commands us to do in His Word. And last week in Ephesians chapter 4, 17-24, we saw how God does that. How He works in us and He works through us to bring about our transformation and to give us a transformed life. We already have... If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have already experienced significant transformation. You are not who you once were. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk according to the ways of this world. But now, you have been transformed. You have been You've crossed from death to life. You have eternal life. You are part of the family of God. And the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And you are going to start changing who you are. And so last week we looked at the fact that we have a transformed life. Now we want to look this week at part of what a transformed life looks like. How it works itself out. Out on 29 or out on... Uh, out on 6th Street or wherever it is that you live, how does a transformed life look? What are the things that start to happen in your life as a result of being transformed by the Spirit of God? So if you're not there yet, I'd like you to make your way uh, to, back to Ephesians chapter 4 uh, to verse 25. And uh, follow along here as I read. We're going to go down from uh, from. Chapter 4, verse 25, down through chapter 5, verse 2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Now, in this section of Scripture, we don't get a lot of explanation of various uh, high theological concepts or uh, lofty ideas, what we get instead is a lot of exhortation, a lot of do this, live like this. As a result of being transformed by the Spirit, you should be transformed in your relationships with other people. In other words, the Christian life is not something that is lived out kind of in isolation. You don't, you know, I mean... I heard about this brother who prayed uh, one morning. Father, I want to thank you for giving me such a great morning. I've been able to watch the sunrise. I have read your word and we have communed together as I have prayed. And it has been fantastic and I'm really enjoying it. However, I'm about to get up now and I'm going to need help. (laughs) (laughs) right because that is the reality that we live with i can be really holy as long as i have to interact with see talk to or in any way uh, relate to any other actual humans right but the reality is is that as we grow in christ as our transformation by the spirit works itself out we are to be changed in how we relate to each other as human beings. And we're going to have to apply spirit-empowered, grace-fueled, gospel-centered effort to obeying God's commands and to experiencing that transformation in practical ways. That's not legalism. That's just basic Christian maturity. That you obey what God says to do. By the way, I want you to notice something about this text here. Many of these exhortations, if you look at them closely, they all follow a pattern, or many of them follow a pattern. You're first told to stop doing this, and then you're told to start doing this instead, and then you're given a reason why the you should obey God in that way. Now, that's not true in all of them, but it holds in the first one here in verse 25, and the command is to be truthful. Be truthful. I heard something a a few months ago that really bothered me. Somebody was going on and on about my truth. Well, my truth is this, and my truth is that, and You know, my truth says that I'm this kind of a person and all that kind of thing. And I'm like, look, I just wanted to take this person aside and be like, look, I know what you hear on Oprah and all that, right? Read O Magazine or whatever. And she'll tell you that truth is personalizable, right? You can customize it to fit your situation. But that is not reality, okay? There is truth and there is falsehood. And there isn't an in-between, You don't get to shape reality to suit you. It's either true or it's a lie. And so Paul says, again, he's following the pattern here of these commands. He says, put off falsehood. Put away falsehood. 
and put on truth. Speak the truth to one another. It's it very much following the pattern that he gave us in verse 22 to put off your old self and then uh, verse 24 to put on the new self, right? He's giving us examples of what that looks like. Put off, put away falsehood. As unbelievers, a lot of us were prone to lie. A lot of us. Maybe not in areas that we consider to be great big, but we lie. A lot of us lie when we're unbelievers because we fear looking bad more than we fear being bad. Right? And so when somebody confronts us with something that doesn't really put us in a good light, what do we do? We start shading and shaping the truth, right? You start saying, well, that's not really what I meant. Or, you know, no, that's not exactly how that happened. It was really more like, right? Instead of coming clean and being truthful. And saying, you know what? I'm sorry. Nobody wants to be ashamed of themselves, but as unbelievers, we love sin. And sin makes us do shameful things as, as a matter of course. But as Christians, we stop lying. We put away falsehood. We speak the truth to our neighbors. And note the reason why. Because the reason why is just as important as the command. Because we are members of one another. In other words, we're part of the same body. The same family of God. And lying is a violation of our relationship with each other. We don't lie because we're family. In other words. And the person you hurt is connected to you. You are part of the same body. Right? So in other words, it's not like you can say, well, I'm going to hit my thumb with a hammer and it's not going to hurt me. Right? You can't do that. Why not? Because it's connected to you. And so if you do hit your hand with a hammer, what are you going to do? First, you're going to stick it in your mouth, right? <laughs> and you go, mm, right? I don't, why do we do that? I don't know. But we, do, we all do that, right? And we're just going to yell a little bit and that kind of thing, right? But it's impossible to hurt one part of your body and the rest of your body remain unaffected. And that's Paul's point. When we're members of one another, you can't lie and hurt someone else and the rest of you remain unaffected. You're all part of the same body. Why don't I lie to my kids? Why don't I lie to my wife? Why don't I lie to my employer? Because we're family. Because I love them. And lying hurts them. Right? Why don't we lie in the body of Christ? Same reason. Because we love each other. And lying hurts someone that we love. The next thing here. Uh, these are just, just straight up commands. Verse 26 and 27, you've got to restrain your anger. Be angry and do not sin. 
Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, I find that first verse just to be really intriguing. That first sentence right there where it says, Be angry and do not sin. That's a little that's a that's a hard balancing act, I think. Because the verse implies that it's possible to be angry in a non sinful way. I don't know if I've ever done that, but <laughs> but the verse seems to indicate that it is possible to be angry about something and not be in sin over it. Some things, I think, should make us angry. Where we see injustice, where we see oppression, where we see abuse, uh, where we see these kinds of things, where we see God's name and His ways profaned and mocked, we should, those things should make us angry. But anger easily slides over into sinful rage, doesn't it? Easily. And to do that, we're told, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, for me personally, um, that's probably good practice to take what's meant to be poetic very literally. <laughs> right? To literally not let the, let the day end and me still be cranked around about something, right? But the idea being communicated here is that you can't cultivate it and feed it and nurture it, and you can't let it fester and go deep into your soul. You deal with the reasons for your anger quickly, in other words, right? You know, sometimes, sometimes we get angry with somebody, right? And we don't tell them right away. Um, we maybe tell 75 other people, but, <laughs> but we don't tell them, right? And we talk about it, and we commiserate on it, and we just keep, it just keeps growing, right? And what had been a relatively minor issue, all of a sudden has become this giant pustule in your soul, <laughs> Right? And when you see them, it just is going to all over them, right? And they're like, what's the deal with you? Well, you remember back 18 months ago when you said whatever, and you're like, no, I don't remember what I ate yesterday, (laughs) right? Uh, I sure don't remember an interaction we had 18 months ago, right? The idea is is that as Christians, you you can't, let stuff fester and grow and be fed and nurtured because it, tur- it turns in on you, right? It's like picking up a rattlesnake by the tail. <laughs> you know, uh, it might go great for a little bit, but eventually that thing's coming back around at you, right? And you are the one who gets most deeply hurt. And, and that's the point of verse 27. He says, do not give the devil a foothold. And what he's saying there, this is the reason why you don't do this, why you don't cultivate and nurture anger, and you let it go, is because it gives Satan room to work in your life. It gives Satan a foothold 
The devil would love to turn us all from being joyful followers of Jesus into another uh, angry little rage monkey like the, like the internet is currently full of, right? You want to see anger on display, uh, get yourself a Twitter account and a few political uh, feeds to follow. Uh, it'll cure you of wanting to do that again, right? I got off of my account. I deleted it entirely um, because I found that as I continued to read that stuff and just think about all the things that made me upset, that I just got more and more upset about stuff, right? And 24 hours from now, the, the news cycle is going to have moved on, but I'll still be cranked. I don't need that. I do not need that in my life, right? And, and that's what anger allows the devil to do, is just to turn you into just kind of a short-tempered, angry, nasty person who likes to argue and fight. That is not the goal. Amen? Becoming an angry person does not win people to Jesus. There are no, there are no, there are no rewards giving out, given out in heaven for being the, the most short-tempered, angry, nasty person. They're not there. Don't give the devil a foothold into your life. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So you don't let anger take over in your life. Don't do it. Verse 28, work hard and be generous. It should go without saying, it doesn't, but it should go without saying that if you're a Christian, you cannot also be a thief. Can't do it. Can't. And I'm talking about any areas, big or small. I'm talking about everything from walking off with the pins from the office to, uh, you know, the grand theft, right? A Christian should not be a thief. Instead, he should work hard. Work hard. Whatever your job is, if it's honest work, it is honoring to God. Whatever it is. If, you're a, if you drive a snowplow, you can honor God in that. If you teach kids, you can honor God in that. If you work in an office, you can honor God in that. If you uh, cut grass for a living, you can honor God in that. If you fix cars for a living, you can honor God in that. Whatever your job is, if it is staying home and raising your children, you can honor God in that. All of these things and many more are honorable professions. Right? And the goal is not just to make money for yourself. Because what's a thief do? What's his motivation for stealing? I want something I don't have that you've got, and I want it for me. Right? And a lot of people go to their jobs exactly that way. They, it, almost like a thief. Not because they want to steal from their office or their employer or whatever, but they go for them. I want, I've got to get this job so I can make money, so I can pay my bills, so I can buy my stuff at my house, that I can have my life be the nicest it can be. 
And, the, and, and, and our motivation is not to be the satisfaction of our own desire merely. Because do we all need stuff? Yeah. A certain degree of it, yes, we absolutely do. But the idea is that you work hard so that you can be generous with other people. So that the focus of your universe is not simply yourself. So you can have something doing honest work with your own hands so that, here's the reason, you can have something to share with anyone who is in need. Your job is not just meant to provide for you. It's meant to provide resources to be a blessing to other people as well. Is that a good testimony, by the way? Is that a good testimony? I mean, when you, when you hear about somebody who has died uh, and, they, and they say about them, that guy would give you the shirt off of his back. People look down on that guy? Or are they elevating him? Right? What does more credit to the name of Christ? Somebody who makes a lot of money and spends it all on themselves? Or someone who makes less money and gives a bunch of it away? The answer is obvious, isn't it? That our, our lives are not meant to be turned in toward us. They're meant to be turned out toward other people. And to be transformed as a Christian is to live in a way that, that your life is a blessing to other people. Uh, going on with that same thought on a different way, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that may give grace to those who hear. A transformed life includes what, what is coming out of our lips. There shouldn't be any corrupting talk. Uh, your, your translation may, re, may re render it something like this. It may say something like, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. The idea here is not simply that we should stop cussing, although if you are a Christian and you do curse, you should stop. <laughs> okay? But the idea is more than that. That's part of it, but it's bigger than that. It's, you know, because what comes out of our mouth is just one manifestation of what's in our heart. And so if you want to deal with your lips, you've got to deal with the, the issues in your heart. And corrupting talk it, it includes all kinds of evil speech. All kinds. So not just cussing as an example, but also harsh criticism. Also dirty jokes. Also innuendos. Double entendres. Verbal bullying. You ever know somebody who's just, every time you see him, is just beating somebody down with their mouth? How much fun are they to be around? When you hear that, do you think, well, there goes a follower of Jesus. <laughs> right? I hope not. I hope that has not been your experience of life in the church of Jesus Christ. That, that when you hear somebody beat somebody else down verbally that you think, well, that's what a Christian must be, right? No. 
You'd stay away from that person. And as your life is being transformed, you know, verbal bullying and boasting and cursing and harsh criticism and all of that kind of thing are not building other people up, are they? That you're meant to, with your mouth, build rather than destroy. The goal, according to the text here, is that we give grace to those who hear. That our mouths are dispensers of grace to other people. The idea being that that as people talk to us, that it is something that draws them near to God. That they are able to, to, to say, well, that person sure is different i sure like being around that person you know i think about i think about this like with the i get together periodically with bill allison we have lunch um i pay he prays it works out and um and we have a good time together we usually spend two three hours talking and one of the things i really enjoy about bill and if you've, you've spent any time with him you know this he is very interested in what you have to say. And he will just sit and listen and go, so tell me about your journey right now. How are things with you and the Lord? You know? And he'll just talk. And he'll listen. And you talk. And then he'll ask questions about what you said. Right? You know what he's doing? Giving grace. Dispensing grace to people who need it. He's a great example of this. He really is. You see him, tell him I said so. But, um, but he draws people in. He draws people in. Because he's giving them grace. And they wind up closer to God than they were before. In fact, I've seen him do this several times. We go to a restaurant and he'll ask the waitress, hey, could you sit down with us for just a second? Because, you know... He's a pastor, and I'm a missionary, and we'd like to pray for you about whatever's going on in your life. And you'd be shocked, the number of these waitresses that will just sit down and be like, well, as a matter of fact, <laughs> let me tell you about it, right? And we just have a moment right there and pray for this person. And, and they are so touched that we would do that. And then, of course, the secret to doing that is after you've done that, you better leave a fat tip, Right? You want that to communicate too. We value you as a person, not just as somebody who's bringing me food, right? But give grace in your words. Edify with your words. Verse 30, don't grieve the Spirit of God. Uh, verse 30 does not fit the pattern. All the others uh, up to now, you get command, you know, you get don't do this, do this, here's why. This one, you get the the negative, don't do this. And then the explanation, but not the instruction. So we're just told, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And we're not specifically told how that happens. But the idea is that our sin, our sin saddens the Spirit of God within us. It causes Him pain. And you, ha and you must not do that. Bringing pain 
to the Spirit of God who indwells you. And you don't do that. Why not? Here's the reason. It says, because God, by His Spirit, has sealed us with the day, for the day of redemption. Now, that word seal is really interesting. In, in Greek, it's the word arabone. And it has the idea, it's a legal term. It has to do, like, if you are, if you are um, involved in a real estate transaction, a lot of times what the, what the seller will want you to do is to put up earnest money. Or if you buy a car, uh, you have to make a down payment. And you have to put some money up front into the deal so that they know that you are serious about completing this transaction. And the idea is, is that if you don't, if you walk away, then they keep your money as the cost of putting up with you and your foolishness, right? And, and, and it's, the idea is, is that this is the seal, this is the, this is the marker of the pledge that I am making that I'm going to complete this at a point later. And um, it's, also, you know, and it's also used in, a, in context of contracts and covenants. Uh, maybe the closest thing that you, would ha- you and I would have uh, to compare it to today would be like a young man uh, will go spend two or three months' wages on a little bitty ring with some colored rocks on the top of it, right? And that is crazy when you really think about it. But I mean, it is romantic. Um, but you go, this is some rocks and some metal. And, and, but you, you do this, right? And you get down on one knee and you ask this, this beautiful woman to spend the rest of her life with you. knowing that you're probably going to die before she does, right? She's going to have to bury you. She said, and, and basically, you know, it's like, will you take care of me until I die? That's the, that's the promise you're asking her to make. And you're making the promise with something that is the seal of that promise. Amen? And the idea is, is that this is just a little taste an appetizer, if you will, for the grand and glorious reality that is about to follow of being married to me, <laughs> right? And, and, and I'm making a little bit of a joke, but seriously, that's the idea, is that this is the, the down payment, this is the foretaste, this is the seal of a, of a much bigger, much greater promise the reality of which you are going to enter into at some point later. Now, what is the seal? Or more, more appropriately, who is the seal? God, the Holy Spirit. So the idea behind this is this, is that if it's true that having the Holy Spirit present in your life is a great glorious, amazing, supernatural, divine thing, and it is. The portion of the promises of God that are fulfilled in that is this much. And so, if you are enjoying your Christian life being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
it is almost like it is your engagement ring and the he is your engagement ring and the marriage hasn't actually started yet that that's coming and so if this is a good and a grand and a wonderful reality that we have the Holy Spirit within us, and there is something much better coming, we will actually have much better communion with God one day than we enjoy even now. And if that's what we're anticipating, then do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day that's coming of redemption the day of your final redemption is coming and the holy spirit is god's promissory note if you will that i'm going to deliver on this i'm going to deliver on this you know in, in other words let me give you another example if 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 you have uh gotten engaged do you still date other people? Well, I hope not. I hope not. If you are engaged, if you will, to Jesus, and you have received the seal of redemption by the Holy Spirit, we don't continue to bow ourselves before other gods if you will than jesus we don't connect ourselves to other things that might we think give us joy and happiness and meaning instead of jesus or in addition to jesus to do that is to grieve the holy spirit of god sin is not just is not just Something that God would rather we didn't do. It's a violation of our covenant relationship with Him. It is spiritual adultery. Amen? And we don't do it. We are looking forward to the day when we are going to be redeemed and we live our lives in light of that impending reality. We live our lives looking forward to that day. Now, there are two more commands left in this passage. Uh, the first one is verse 31 and 32. We're to replace bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slammer, slander, and malice with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. You know what causes all those sinful things that Paul mentions in verse 31? It's nurturing offenses and feeding slights until they rise up as a volcano of rage within you. And now we've moved from anger all the way at the end of the verse to hatred. You know, how many of y'all, I don't know, this, this is an older movie, but how many of y'all seen the original Alien movie? Okay, well in the original Alien movie, by the way, Everybody who is a space explorer is somehow an idiot, okay? <laughs> because they always look for things they shouldn't look in and they get too close to stuff that they shouldn't get close to and it has bad effects in every circumstance, right? But anyway, they go into this abandoned spaceship 
and they find this giant nursery of all of these aliens growing. And you can see that they're growing. They're kind of pulsing and all this, right? One guy opens up his helmet because that's the smart thing to do. And he looks over and this thing shoots out of there and attaches to his face, right? And they, you know, he's kind of paralyzed and they take him back to their ship and they go, oh, this was a bad idea, right? Clyde shouldn't have done that, you know? And so then a couple, of, a couple of days later, the thing falls off his face and he seems to be fine, right? And then what happens? All of a sudden, you see this thing eat its way out from the inside and kill the guy. And then it runs loose in the ship, gets huge, and proceeds to eat everybody but Sigourney Weaver. All right? So <laughs> um, my point in sharing that is to say this. That feeding anger and rage and all of that over a long period of time in your life, it will eat you from the inside like that alien. And you will look for a while like you're perfectly fine. But over time, it consumes you. It consumes you. And you've got to replace that stuff with with tenderheartedness, kindness, and forgiveness. And look at the motivation here. The, the, you know, God is so good. He tells us how to do that. How do I, how do I become a, a, a kind and tenderhearted person? How do I become a forgiving person? He tells us there at the end of the verse, as God in Christ forgave you. See, if I focus on all of the ways that people have hurt me, slandered me, injured me, hated me, etc., guess what I become? Become just like them. Become just like the thing that I hate. But if I focus on, instead, what God has done in me and for me and through me, I become kind and tender-hearted and forgiving because grace covers a multitude of sin. One of the greatest parables Jesus ever told is this one. He talked about he talked about it's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. It's in Matthew chapter 18 if you want to read it. And what happens is is that it says a, a king had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. Okay? A talent, if, you, if you're curious, is a, a weight, about 75 pounds. Uh, so 10,000 talents was a weight measured in gold. Okay? So take 75 times 10,000 times the price per ounce, and you get somewhere in the neighborhood of about $8 billion. Okay? many of y'all are working off an $8 billion debt? Right? Maybe you put in a little overtime, you know, work some weekend shifts, right? You want to pay that off? No. Right? Not in a million years are you going to pay that off. But the servant went to his master being guilty, having incurred this massive debt, and he pleads with his master for forgiveness. 
and wonder of wonders, the master forgives him. Do you remember? And he lets him go free, free of eight billion dollars in debt a debt that was so big he could never pay it in a million lifetimes and then he finds his fellow servant and his fellow servant owes him like 300 bucks and he grabs a hold of him by the throat and he says pay me what you owe me the fellow servants this servant See what happens. They go back to the master and say, you know, didn't you just forgive this guy like a huge amount of money? Yeah, I did. Well, you know, we just saw him. It's funny because, you know, he was forgiven all that, but, you know, he owes, he owes Billy Bob uh, 300 bucks and he was beating it out of him. Really? How about that? Go get that wicked servant and bring him back in here. And he says, if you do not forgive... Those who sin against you, neither will your Father forgive your sins that you have committed against Him. That's the point of the parable. When I focus on what I have been forgiven of, it's a whole lot easier to be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving of anything anybody's done to me. Amen? To hold that stuff with a really open hand and to say, Lord, I have been forgiven much more than what, has, what needs my forgiveness. So therefore, I'm going to forgive this person and let this go. Forgiveness. As God in Christ forgave you. Verse 1 and 2, chapter 5, last thing here. Imitate God's love. Here in, this, here in these verses, we don't get a sin to reject. This one violates the pattern too. Because there's no sin to reject. It just says, do this. Here's two models to follow. The first one is God Himself who loves and forgives and made us His children. And notice, not just His children. What's the, what's the text say? Beloved children. In other words, this isn't somebody that, you know, I brought into the world and then forgot about. These are my beloved children. The ones who are near to my heart. And you also imitate Christ in His love. How did Christ love us? What's the text say? He sacrificed Himself. He gave Himself up for us as a sacrifice to God. Guess what we're called to do? To lay down our lives for other people's benefit that we might become like Jesus and that our lives might be a pleasing sacrifice to God. All of these commands, and there's a bunch of them here, to put off sin and to put on holiness instead all boil down to this really. That at the end of the day, God wants to make us like Him that the power He has revealed to us in the Gospel, the love He has shared with us through Christ, would transform us from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. So that we would start setting our sinful desires and behaviors aside and we would start living as a blessing to other people. 
And that is what transformed living is. That's what it all boils down to. Having been transformed, we live as transformed people. People who are focused not on ourselves, but focused on others that we might live like, like God has lived and sent His Son for us. Right? That we might imitate as God's children the way God is. That we might put into practice the love we have been shown. Same kind of thing. So, let's pray. Before we do that, let me say this. Okay, Next week, just a heads up for you parents. Next week, if you read further in chapter 5, you'll understand what the topic is. Okay? Um, we're going to discuss that. I'm not going to be, not going to be um, graphic, but I will be blunt. If you are not ready to have that conversation with your kids yet, that's okay. Um, I'll work with the folks in Children's Church to, uh, to take a few more. But if your kid is, is uh, nearing puberty, this would be a good discussion for them. Okay? So, just be aware of that. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it speaks to us so clearly and tells us not only what to do, but why that we might understand and obey and live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray we might honor you in all that we do and say and think. In Jesus' name, amen.